1: Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday time for our Zoomer Squad, and we will finally get the Ontario budget this Thursday. We have already seen one thing aimed at the older demographic. About an hour ago, the Ford PCs announced a billion dollars over three years for home care. And this says NDP leader Andrea Horvath unveiled her platform for seniors, as we heard in Bob's news. So unlike the liberal post-election federal budget, where the older demographic was ignored, it looks like the provincial parties in the pre-election season are actually remembering who gets out to vote. So what do you think of these promises? Uh, Do you think they will actually be made real? And are they enough? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And let's get right to it with David Kravitz, VP of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Peter Muggridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Hey guys. Hi, Libby. Hi, 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 everyone. Well, let us begin with David. And David, this billion dollars over three years for home care, will that do it?
2: Well, it's a start, and uh, I think it's great that everybody's talking about it. I think the best thing that can happen to seniors in Ontario is to have all three parties fighting over uh, how to correct the many problems that we have and getting into a debate about what to do. So there's nothing in here not to like. I would just caution everybody that none of this stuff is ideological or philosophical. They're all going to claim to want to do it. The proof will be in the execution and what we've suffered from in the past is, you know, lousy execution. So let's see whether they can implement this.
1: Bill, is it enough?
3: No, it's not. It's not enough. We're so far behind in, in home care for the province that, uh, Uh, almost anything that they promise is not enough. Is it a start? Uh, Yes, it could well be, although there's some glaring uh, uh, pieces that that aren't in uh, this plan. Uh, Not only a detail of how they're going to carry it out, but it appears that all the money that they're uh, they're looking at is going to support uh, government-supported uh, home care. And one of the big issues, of course, is that uh, a lot of people depend and continue to depend on private home care, and there's nothing in it that looks like it's going to help them except uh, if they raise the salaries in the uh, not-for-profit government and they're going to steal employees. Uh, from the uh, for-profit. So we'd really like to see them deal with that, uh, with that issue and explain how they're going to make sure that everybody who needs home care gets it, no matter what the source of their supply. Hmm.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, between the, the public and the private, there are just a lot of middle people, right? Either way. And the same. Well, there
3: are the government and the government also, uh, hires, uh, uh, private uh, their care to supply its needs within its own system. It's a, a very complicated, messy, muddy system.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, I had this experience. So it's a private company delivering, but there's all kinds of middle people. There's a coordinator from the government. There's a coordinator from uh, from the private company. They take money for administration, and uh, the seems like the last people to to get. Uh, a decent wage are the people who actually deliver the care.
3: Yeah, they need they they more than coordination. They need uh, uh, the citizens need navigation. Families need to uh, be helped to find out where they can get the best care and the care that they need at that time. And that's what's wholly uh, entirely missing uh, from the system at the moment. And I don't see anything at, about it in the new plan either. Peter. Yeah. Well,
4: Libby, you you sort of outlined that problem with the middlemen and in, in a column you wrote recently in zoomer but uh um you know whether it's enough funding or whether you know the system can handle um home care right now I, I think it's very interesting the language they're using it's home care they're just for the first time it's sort of this is a huge promise that you know we're doing home care and we haven't seen that language in any promises anywhere so i i think that's a major step forward and uh you know once something gets funding it Generally gets more funding and it gets more attention, and it sort of it snowballs. Its effectiveness snowballs. So, so I think that's a very important first step to get it into the, uh, you know, out there into into the media, so people people can see you know how important this issue is. CARP's been hammering it for years, and it's out there now. So, so that's a good step.
1: Well, that, 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 that's a very interesting point, Peter. And David, mm-hmm. we're also hearing from the opposition. The NDP uh, leader just unveiled, unveiled her platform again, you know, within the last half hour or so. And she's talking about taking better care of, of, of seniors and fixing everything. And, uh, of course, uh, she could not answer the question of where the money's going to come from.
2: Well, none of them can. It's easier to promise it and spread it out over time. Um, but I'm I'm a little bit with uh, you know Peter on this that if the language changes, if the focus changes, if they're all promising home care, it's almost like they're inviting uh, us to scrutinize outcomes for the first time. And the more they're, uh, the more it becomes a topic, the more the dialogue goes deeper. And some of those issues, uh, you know, you just made the point about middlemen, for example. I remember last week on your show, I was there that uh, horrible call, a very distressing call from the lady whose husband finally got into the new facility in Ajax, but how exhausting it was for her to deal with home care, to find out where to get home care, home care workers not showing up on time. Uh, it was a, it was a, I've been haunted by that call almost all week. How terrible her experience was in trying to deal with the home care system, and that's where you know the proof will be. We can make an announcement. We can we can throw money at it, and it's we should applaud that. It's great. Finally waking up that this is a major topic. Let's see you perform. Let's see you deliver. And uh, they're inviting that kind of scrutiny by making these promises. Shame on us if we don't uh, subject to them to that scrutiny.
1: Well, it's it's really interesting. There was a recent survey by the Home Care Association, and before the pandemic, pre-pandemic, they said that they were able to fulfill, I forget the exact number, but 90-some-odd, like maybe 95% of requests, and that was cut back to 56% in the pandemic. And I don't even necessarily know what fulfilling a request is, because in addition to not showing up on time or not showing up, the, the visits are cut short because uh, the PSWs have to get to the next place. It just seems like a, a total boondoggle. And it's
2: not the PSW necessarily that you saw last week, and it might be a different one next week.
1: Exactly. And again, you make a good point. You know, one of uh, our regular callers here, uh, he, he, his family is well off and they pay for their own PSW for their loved one because uh, he needs the consistency. He suffers with dementia and there's nothing for them to ease the burden and and you know as far as he's concerned he said the the only thing that really riles him up about it is that on top of the huge cost and it's huge there's tax on it <laughs> there's yeah. HST on it yeah yeah <laughs>
3: yeah yeah that's another that's another uh, huge area and carp has been talking about that for a number of years now one of the ways that they could make Uh, home care uh, more affordable is by taking both the provincial and the federal taxes off of uh, uh, home care, and that would be a huge step.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it seems, and again, you know, we've been talking about uh, the private companies in it. The the same private companies deliver care privately and publicly. So they're contracted
2: to the government, that's right.
1: I mean, though it can be weird because I remember one time I got so frustrated, you know, I called them and I said, fine, send somebody, I'll pay for it. And it was like, oh, that's really complicated. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, you know, oh, I don't know. So, But they sent <laughs> yeah. the person and I didn't have to pay for it. But it, it was, you know, there should be some means where, you know, if, If you get X amount of government-funded home care and you would like some more or need some more, you can just pay for it without a big hassle.
4: Yeah, that that, home care system has been underfunded and neglected for so long. This seems like the ideal opportunity to just start from scratch, really, you know, like just like, uh, you know, with the initial big funding, let's devise a system. You know, there's not one in place. There's not like a heritage system. That we can't dismantle quickly and put one up, uh, you know, in place.
1: Oh, Peter, Peter. There makes, was, that remember so that promise before, <laughs> that promise before the last election, 2018, that they were going to take out, uh, they were going to take out the the LINS, the Lins and the yeah. CCAC. And so far, what they, that's community care access, uh, blah, blah. Uh, and uh, they've changed the name of it. And I think that there are marginally fewer very highly paid, publicly paid employees. Right. But the system is not streamlined, even though we apparently have these on. They're supposed to be part of these health teams, which makes sense, right? It's part of a continuum of care. But as far as I can see, it's it's not.
2: But what they're not doing is they're not, they're not working backwards from the recipient of the care. No, it's a bureaucratic. Trying to take their existing architecture and make it fit instead of saying, what is, what is home care? How many people, for example, can afford to pay for private home care? Each of those people represents a bed in a hospital that doesn't need to be occupied because they're getting care at home. So what is rational to do with that population? What about people that can't afford it? What is the right mix? Where is the supply going to come from? I don't see any sign of taking a look at the whole thing. They're saying, here's the cumbersome architecture we're stuck with, and let's make it kind of sort of maybe work for this new buzzword. And when when they they, uh, get to grips with the fundamentals
3: is when we'll see improvement. Hmm. You're quite right, uh, David. And one of the big issues we deal with all the time is that this money is siloed. In other words, saving money in the home care, spending money in the home care area does not automatically save money for the, the hospitals. And there's no cooperation between departments bureaucratically. Uh, to make that work. That's why it has to be a policy decision at the highest levels saying you will do this. And that's what uh governments to this point haven't been uh, willing to do to say, yes, we can. uh We can save money in the long run for the entire system if we put more money in this area and, and less in the other. But we don't do that. And the other argument is that if we leave those, if, if those hospital beds become uh, free then they'll just be uh, uh, used by other people so there won't be a long term saving for the the government it's a it's a, a vicious circle
1: well but it's th- that was presumably the point of these health teams that are i guess in progress still that it's supposed to be the hospital maybe the hospital as a hub and and doctors and home care i mean that was the idea, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, it was, but it's not working, is it?
1: Well, I'm asking you.
3: No, no, it's not. Look,
2: make it simple. On a national level, there are 7.2 million Canadians who are 65 or over. Every single one of them, and may, may we all be in <laughs> great health you know, forever, but every single one of them is more likely to be a candidate or more interested in home care, more interested in how do I uh remain independent in my home over time, including how do I get my health care at home, more of my health care at home and not in institutions. It's a it's a case for a national I don't want to say strategy, because that's also a buzzword in itself, But a look at the whole thing from the perspective of those people. What do they need? How many are there? How many of them are going to need X, Y, and Z? Where are you going to get it from? What can you do with what you've already got? And what do you have to invent that doesn't exist yet? Instead of just gluing on your present creaky, obsolete architecture onto this hot new topic. And I, I don't see any sign of I I like these announcements because at least there's a recognition that this is the coming thing, which is good for us to have that on the agenda all the time but they need to get some fresh thinking in there on the management and on the execution side and not just on the policy announcement side. They're very good at announcing policies, but and re-announcing. Not, as good as, not as good at, at executing, you know.
0: Yeah, you're
3: right. There's, you know, that raises another question, I, and, and maybe one of you can help explain it, but they talk about the need for more PSWs uh, in in the system for home care, but then they go on to talk about Uh, what looks like a wonderful uh, new program to support more nurses coming into the system. Nothing about where they're going to get more PSWs.
1: Oh, I think they've already announced that several times. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh the, the the numbers are staggering and it it does not necessarily look like the recruitment is going that that well. Exactly. And you have all these issues with uh private companies and how much they might want to increase salaries and all of that. So it I mean I'm not saying That it's easy, but uh, sort of moving right along and related. So we have this budget coming on Thursday and it's kind of sort of moot because it will only become actual if this government is reelected. Uh, they quietly changed the law. They were supposed to bring down budgets by March 31st every year or get penalized. They quietly changed that. So Doug Ford won't have to take a pay cut because of that. And of course, it gives less time for scrutiny by the auditor general. And it can, you know, it, uh, we had somebody here the other week describing it as a cannon shooting money. <laughs> Uh so you know uh, again the good news is that unlike federally it looks like the provincial parties are are um not ignoring the demo but what else do you want in that budget and does it uh, does it matter at all
4: What one thing um, I think a lot of people would like to see would be money uh specifically allocated to catch up on um the backlogs in in screening especially cancer screening it's, it's, uh, you know, just an anecdotally, the, the, uh, chapel is next door to me, um, has cancer now. And if they had screened it, if he had not missed his screenings during COVID, he, you know, he, he wouldn't be in such rough shape. And, and that's happened all over the province. And, and this is a huge, uh, thing that has to be in the budget, budget money specifically for that. And then, uh, and, and, uh, other than that, um, there's got to be something done for small businesses that, that got totally bowled over during during COVID. Um, there's got to be some sort of, I don't know, tax break, some sort of uh, program to support them, get them rolling again. And also, um, there's going to be a labor shortage. It, we're on the cusp of, of a labor shortage, and small business depends on labor. And uh, I think Ford's going to have to do something in, in the budget to uh, to address that.
1: Hmm, yeah, I mean again it's 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 hard to collate all the the announcements they've made even in the last few weeks. It's a, a few dollars for training worth. here. There was yeah. just another training announcement this morning. Yeah. Uh yeah. so it's it's putting it all together and stacking it up against what's already been promised. David, I mean uh
2: well uh, yeah. We'd like to see five things. We've, we're going out with the CARP 5. That's CARP's program during the election campaign. We're going to be running ads and commercials. One of the five is home care, of course. We're very glad to see this. But we also don't want to forget about reinventing long-term care and completely transforming long-term care, a greater ability and greater avail, availability, excuse me, and convenience on on vaccines, to Peter's point, fixing the healthcare system to eliminate wait times. That's wait times is a key issue, including the diagnostic tests and services. And uh, I think a, a, a small but very important item, which could save the healthcare system a lot, uh, a tax credit for seniors uh, uh, who engage in fitness, uh, exercise and fitness activities. So we've got our big five as CARP, and we're hoping to make that the centerpiece of every all candidates meeting, and uh, asking them, "Do you endorse these five things? Will your party commit to these five things?" And uh, that's our that's
3: our focus. Hmm.
1: That's interesting. I, I wonder if a tax credit will make people take up fitness. I'm, I'm not well,
3: sure. Well, there's a little bit more than just uh, tax credits in our. In our plan, and that's also, we want the government to do what it has to do to make sure that local fitness providers, municipalities and, and regions start programming more for older Ontarians. Uh, they've got to realize it's not just their job anymore to run hockey leagues and baseball uh, leagues for kids, but that uh, older uh, Ontarians are becoming uh, a greater part of their, who they have to uh, have to serve. And we need more programs available in local communities so that when we encourage our CART members and their friends uh, to stay fit for their own health, they've got a place to do it.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. I know that there's some of that available, but uh, probably not enough as with everything else. And uh, Peter, to your point about the backlog of screening, and again, I've got to go back. They have already committed money to that, and I think there's probably also a certain limitation for in terms of capacity.
4: Right. Yeah. So I, I I'm not sure whether they can up the capacity or not, but uh, certainly it's it's one of the OMA's uh, key key messages for the for the budget is that um, this sort of uh, this sort of um, you know, this is a huge
3: issue, they've noted, yeah. and, uh, and it, it absolutely needs to be addressed. Yeah, we've had these vague promises before. What CARP is asking for in its five uh, demands now is dates and measurable goals to be achieved. We've got to turn these numbers uh, around in terms of improving uh, the performance numbers, uh, wait times of all kinds, not just diagnostic testing, which is really important, but also wait times, the whole business of hallway uh, medicine. We need to see practical uh, ways of solving that problem.
1: Oh, wow. You know, uh, I I, I, I was out at the neighborhood cleanup yesterday, and one of my neighbors, who I know well but haven't seen certainly for months, and it's like, wow, uh, he was recently diagnosed with cancer and he's getting his treatment and he's going to be okay. But th- he had some kind of blood infection from the chemo and, and he was telling me, and I found this wow, that when he was in the hospital, he was the fifth person in a four person room. And, wow. Wow. That was shocking. And then he said on the other hand he did get his treatment, which uh, you know, thank goodness <laughs> for that. Yeah, but wow, that was just I was like, oh my goodness.
2: But you see the the pieces are interconnected. So you have a, a terrible infrastructure underpinning the entire healthcare system that's on fumes, not enough facilities, which leads to wait times, not enough practitioners which leads to wait times which in turn leads to bad clinical outcomes, which is all the and but you have a system that's heavily siloed and the interconnectivity of the pieces is never really looked at or addressed. It's easier to make one off, and we're going to put a billion here, we're going to put a 100,000 here, we're going to hire some workers over there, but who's looking at the whole uh, machine? And eventually they need to do this or it's not going to get fixed.
4: It's like trying to build a house without a contractor. You know, like... The plumber comes in without knowing what the drywall guy is doing without knowing what exactly the electrician right. is doing, exactly and right. so you got all these people operating blindly, really, all these systems operating blindly uh
1: so again, I mean uh. What is your, uh, the the word uh, from the uh, pundit class at the moment is that the PCs will probably get in. They will get in, almost certainly, again, but possibly not with the majority. Do you have any thoughts, David, on what that might mean to this budget becoming real?
2: Um, I'm not. Uh, I'm not an expert on this, so I can't predict the outcome. I would be, I would, myself, I would be surprised if he does not get a majority. But I think that, um, uh, he's probably going to move ahead with his program, uh, and defy the uh, opposition to defeat him, I would think. Unless it's a razor, you know, unless it's like a, a, a virtual tie or some, some, one of the other two parties really way overperforms. But um, I think that whatever's in the budget uh, this week is what's going to happen going forward. And oh, that's be, interesting. That'd Dave. be my
3: guess. Yeah. Bill, go ahead, I would I would see it as uh, a typical election uh, budget. Well, they make sure that everything that's in it is the kind of thing that supports. Uh, uh, their party and what they and uh, and, and what they want to uh, accomplish, and that after the election uh, they'll uh, uh, take another whole look at it. We'll have new ministers in place. We'll have a new approach. We'll have uh, they'll have the feedback from the public in terms of the election. They'll have all kinds of reasons to make changes, uh, so that the fall yeah, that's budget will sure. really make it make it make a difference. This yeah. is uh, this is another piece of election documentation.
2: Yeah, I don't disagree, Peter.
3: Well, um,
4: if it's razor razor thin margin, might we see another uh, Liberal NDP alliance this time in Ontario? I think I think we will. They'll do. It's already spoken about it, and uh, Howard said it's You know, she'd address it when the time comes, but um, it raises that possibility if if there is, and and I think it's
3: a big if.
1: Hmm. Well, uh, yeah. we will have a chance to chat many more times before yeah. <laughs> that election, yeah. even though it's kind of coming up sooner than we thought. In the meantime, thank you so much, Bill Van Gorder, Peter Muggridge, and David Kravitz, our Zoomer squad. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Libby. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will be talking to a very recently retired Highly ranked tennis player now on the front lines in Ukraine, and the subject—is uh, it the right thing to be banning Russian and Belarusian athletes and artists? When we come back,
0: you're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio, heard weekdays from noon to one. Oh, no. Fight Back with Libby Schneider on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back.
1: Last week, we learned that Russian and Belarusian athletes will be banned from Wimbledon this year. Wimbledon, of course, one of the prestigious Grand Slam tennis tournaments, and it is run by a private club, the All England Club, which makes its own rules. Now, the Association of Tennis... Tennis professionals, the governing body of men's professional tennis, is not on side with this, and some Russian artists have been barred from performing, notably like soprano Anna Netrebko at the Met in New York City. So is this the right thing? We are going to explore this. First, I am delighted to speak to recently retired Ukrainian professional tennis player, Alexander Dolgopolov, who is now on the front lines in Ukraine. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. Thank you for having me. Uh, So what are you doing now in Ukraine?
5: Uh, Helping with what I can uh, locally. Uh, different stuff. Now we we ordered some uh, bulletproof vests for for our defenders. We we drove to Chernyoz when it was uh, uh, Russians are uh, uh, close to it, so we had to take some humanitarian aid there and uh, helping people around. You know, some people write me with uh, no money under occupation or stuff like that that they need medicine or. So, with uh, with any request, I guess I try to help out and uh, be as useful as I can.
1: Mm-hmm. So, does that mean you're driving around the country? Uh, no, not at the moment.
5: We did go to Chernigov, as I said, that was a few weeks ago. But they they left uh, these areas. They left uh, from Kiev. They left from Chernigov, Sumy, so. There's no ground forces at the moment there, and now the main fights are uh, in the Donbas area next to Herson and uh, on the east coast of the country. So it's pretty far from where I'm at, and uh, no, at the moment I'm not driving around much. Uh,
1: is it okay to say where you are?
5: So yeah, I'm in the capital in Kiev. Uh-huh,
1: and, uh huh. And boy, you know, uh, it's 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 just terrible. When we see what's happened in the capital, uh, you know, the loss of life is horrific. Also, you know, it was such a beautiful place. And, and to look at it now, it it just breaks your heart.
5: Well, Kiev is, uh, is okay compared to Mariupol. It's uh, it's nothing, you know. It's, uh, the town next to Kiev is completely destroyed because they never really... Entered Kiev, to be honest. The, the fights were on the outside of the city, like you probably saw Bucha and Ir- Irpin and all those uh, small, beautiful towns. But Kiev is doing much better than many, many cities. Like Kharkiv is uh, yeah. completely almost destroyed. Uh, Mariupol is a disaster. It's uh, more than 20,000 civilian deaths. So Kiev is doing much better. And uh, we're just looking at all those violence and atrocities—we're just hearing from them because you know people were under occupation, and uh, now they start to uh, get connected to to the outside world and tell all these stories. And uh, yeah, the amount of violence is is crazy.
1: Oh yeah, we see—it's—it's—it's it's, it's horrible. Um... I mean, no words. Uh, Moving along to the question at hand in terms of the banning of Russian and Belarusian athletes from Wimbledon, what is your view of that?
5: I said in the start of the war, I I support this. I think that's the right decision because Putin uses, uh, uses their sports for propaganda very much. You could see that uh, they they made a concert in Moscow supporting this war, and the, there was many champions on that concert because he always glorifies Russia with uh, his sports. And at the moment, we've seen very very poor uh, reactions from Russian tennis players. They haven't spoke up. They haven't really made any actions. There was one or two. Pro- People saying just no war, which is for me, with the magnitude what's happening here, is uh, is a little bit weak, and uh, I think that's uh, the correct uh, take, to be honest.
1: Well, uh, just to give it some context, uh, uh, some of the very top ranked players are russian uh we've got uh, daniel medvedev who is ranked number 2 i think these days there's andrey rublev who is also uh, he's definitely in the top 10 uh mm-hmm. and uh one of the arguments now the the men's tennis association isn't on side with this but i guess you know that's money uh one mm-hmm. of the the arguments against i guess Punishing them is that well, if they have uh, family in Russia, they can't really speak out. What? How do you respond to that?
5: Well, I don't think uh, at the moment the Russian government is really ready to punish uh, famous people who speak out. I mean, yeah, they, they can probably get fined or something. And also, we have to understand that many of these players don't live in Russia, and they have all the options to take out their families from Russia and speak, but they just want to sit it out, you know, and uh, just keep playing and just pretend nothing is happening. But that's not true. I mean, they are big uh, public influencers, and I think they do have, some of them at least, do have a chance to to leave the country. Some of them don't live in Russia, and none of them speak. That looks like, you know, they just, Don't want it.
1: If if they if they were to speak out, do you think that message would get through in Russia of the moment, where all the freer modes of communication are basically banned?
5: Well, that's not really true. Russia has not banned uh, YouTube. Russia has not banned Telegram, and you can, like, for example, any Russian can enter a Ukrainian Telegram channel. I have like ten of them which write instant real news. And if they want, they can access real information. Of course, if they only watch TV, then for sure they will not show uh, some statement uh, against the war of a tennis player. But if they want it, and they do have access, they use VPNs for Instagram, they use VPNs for uh, Facebook, so it's not like they're blocked out and the internet doesn't work or something like that. It's just, uh, of course, the government is showing what they want, but they can access your press, West press, Ukrainian press, whatever they want. So it's, it's not like that. It's for sure they will see an action like this if someone famous starts condemning the war. And we actually see that. You can see some... Uh, artists leaving, there's uh, Maxim Galkin who left to Israel and who is speaking the truth and uh, he's Russian and he's posting it on Instagram. So there are people who took actions and who feel bad for what's happening. So I think, yes, I think that uh, it will work. I mean, at least it will put some people in doubt if Russia is uh, right or wrong at this moment.
1: So, uh, I mean, we hear that there is overwhelming support for this war in Russia, and we also hear that uh, that that's probably an accurate reflection, uh, even though if I were in Russia, I'm not sure I'd want to, you know, people are probably afraid uh, to speak out. So how do you account for that?
5: That's unfortunately true, because... Uh as you know, we had the war with Russia. Not uh, since 24 uh, February, they've sent their troops and uh, and their weapons to Donbass, and uh, they were just denying it. But we knew, and most of the world knew that they are helping Donbas, and they are there with their troops. So, uh, what I've been uh, monitoring what they are saying on their media, what they how they are supporting their government. And before the war, it was much less support, to be honest. The government was, I would say, half was not happy with their government. After the war, it's its really unbelievable. Wherever you enter, it doesn't matter, Instagram, Facebook, Telegram, YouTube, you just see support, supportive messages. And I understand some are are afraid and probably... And probably not writing something or not saying because they I think they've made a law that if you say something about the war, you can go to prison so it's it's tough to really understand the amount of support, but I'm seeing very high support, and of course that's that's sad for us.
1: Yeah, I mean, I hear stories, even hear from uh, Russian Canadians who are watching from here, who are in contact with their families in Russia, and they're being called traitors, and they're saying it's all lies, which is, I mean, unfathomable, basically.
5: It's Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. uh, We know it because, as I said, we we had problems for eight years with them, and uh, we did all the lying that they did with their propaganda, so we're well informed how crazy their propaganda works. For you guys, it's something a little bit new, because I don't think the West has been monitoring closely what they were feeding their people on, on TV, on uh, all these networks. So for you, it's, it's something new, but we, we know that they have been building a machine of hate of uh, completely uh, different information and their own reality. So all the people now, most of the people there, are completely brainwashed. It's it's tough to talk to them. Even you cannot. They just say this is not true. It's a lie. This is a lie. This is fake. Or whatever. And th- there's no conversation. Uh-
1: I have to say that everyone here is totally bowled over by the bravery of the Ukrainian people. Uh, the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, is, is a hero all around the world. What is your sense? I mean, this thing is, is dragging on and it's, I mean, there's, there's no inkling of how or when it might end. So how, what is your take on how people are feeling? Well,
5: here I can tell you that most are also uh, amazed by the braveness of uh, our defenders. Of uh, the country is very united because we had tons of uh, inside conflicts, you know, polit- political conflicts. People were always saying different opinions. Now everyone is like a whole piece because, like every single person is trying to help and to unite, and we see the government strong, we see the army strong. So we're also amazed by the way Ukraine has done, because obviously we're facing a country that was militarized for years, and we are not really, we had war for eight years, but we're a peaceful country, we never invaded anyone or did stuff like that. So uh, people are positive here, I think we had a poll uh uh if people believe we will win the war, eventually ninety one percent believe so or ninety five or like almost everyone and obviously you see the the battlefield uh they haven't really reached any big uh win, so I think for sure we will win, of course, it just depends on how much people it will cost us
1: that's it's It's so awful to watch, Alex before we wrap things up back to the the subject at hand uh, what would you like to say to people who say it's it's not fair to boycott or ban Russian athletes and artists? What would you like to leave us with on that
5: i I believe it is fair because as I said, they are used uh in uh, propaganda they if they want it or not, that's a fact. They cannot say I'm not into politics. And also I believe that the magnitude of what's happening here, you know, like every day we are seeing these tens of different uh, messages of children rapes, which is the most painful stuff that we see. And uh, it's massive. It's not, it's systematic. It's not like uh, one time here and one time there, which obviously happens on work. And yesterday I I was, uh, I caught myself on a, on a thought that I was happy a rocket hit the target because uh, when, when they throw the rockets, you never know if they hit, uh, you know, civil buildings. So now in two months, you get to a point when you're happy that the rocket actually hit a military object because they throw them in houses and it's terrible what's happening. And I think that tennis has to stand up stronger, not just say they condemn it and uh, do nothing. And I think the sport is, uh, is politized in uh, in Russia. So for me, it's a fair decision. Okay.
1: Okay. Um- Alex Delgopolov, uh, please stay safe, take care, and uh, I hope to talk to you again soon, and thank you very much for this.
5: Thank you for having me. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. Okay, we are going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, we will still be exploring this subject, and let me give you the numbers. What do you think? Should we ban individual Russian artists and Russian athletes because of the war. You've just been hearing from very recently retired Alex Dolgopolov, who uh, was a professional tennis player until very recently, saying he thinks it is the right thing. He is now on the front lines in Ukraine. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 And uh, we'll look at the other side of the argument when we come back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The
1: Canada Council for the Arts has announced the withdrawal of support from partnerships and projects involving Russian and Belarusian artists, but there are many people on the other side of that debate arguing that it's not fair to individual Russian athletes and artists if they are banned and that it won't have much impact on Putin's war. I am now joined by Katya Grubusik, Canadian writer, editor and translator, who has made that case in The war la- Walrus. And Svetlana Dvoretsky, a Russian-Canadian president and executive producer of Show One Productions, who has brought many Russian artists to Canadian audiences. Welcome. Thank you both so much for joining us. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having us. Okay, Svetlana, you are on a train in France. That sounds uh, lovely. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. I am. And I'm very sorry for the background. I'm trying to do my best. Okay, no, you sound sound fine. So what is your take on this? Well, actually, you know what? Maybe I'll start with uh, the reason why I'm on the train in France. Um, I've had a
6: number of meetings uh, um, on, on the future concerts, and the recent meeting that I had this afternoon was with Ukrainian um, symphony director, who were planning the, the program um, the, the tour in, in North America with a French artist and in, in the next uh, season, and we've uh, had this very same conversation about Uh, should we uh, not, should the Russian artists and and the Russian artists be banned? And, And besides, outside of my take on this, that was a very strong position of this Ukrainian director that this should not be happening for various reasons. And starting from the artist, it's not uh, just a profession. There are different people with different opinions with different political views. And the uh, generalization of uh, of the artist being Russian or Belarusian is really not something that is fair. Uh, there are so many artists who despite all odds, uh, they've been protesting the war, they've been speaking against the regime, and they've been suffering and that would be the last thing that West can do is to uh, decline their presence and their work in the West world. So we definitely all understand that this is a collateral damage of the horrific things that are happening right now in Ukraine. But if, we, if I were to take the position and voice my opinion, my opinion would be, let's not generalize. Uh, this idea and uh, and let's really see what this people, the particular artists that are uh, really deserve to perform in the West state shoot.
1: Katja, what mm-hmm. is your view on this? We were just ta- talking to Alex Delgopolov, a yes. tennis player, and he says, hey, Putin uses uh, famous athletes and artists for propaganda, so the ban is fine. What's your view?
7: I mean, Putin does, and I my I sympathize entirely with Mr. Delgopolov, and he made some excellent points. And I don't I think it'd be hard press, hard pressed to find the Ukrainian uh, person right now who would say yes, by all means, you know, let's let's boost the <laughs> Ukrainian artists and, and athletes. Um, I do think there's a difference between, for example, uh, millionaire athletes who live abroad and who have their families abroad, and the kind of independent artists who are going to be benefiting from some of these more um more uh let's say ongoing grant programs, that kind of thing, or programming in in orchestras or programming in ballets abroad. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I think that artists are often imperiled and so this is kind of adding insult to often financial duress and, and professional duress. I also I think that initially the cancellations that happened right at the beginning especially, you know, um for the the most notable here in Canada were Alexander Malofeev, the pianist um, there was also, there were a couple of other, um, other instances worldwide, um, of artists whose performances were canceled, and it seemed like a very superficial reaction to a much deeper problem. Um, it seemed to mimic, for example, the fact that the West is enacting these sanctions, even though we're still buying billions of dollars and euros of oil, of Russian oil, constantly every day. And so there's there's the the facade, there's the presentation, and then there's how much actually we're willing to enact to, to isolate Russia and how effective that is. Which is a whole. I mean, I'm not a geopolitical expert, but that's a whole other problem. Um, I think this certainly isn't the time to be. You know, I wouldn't be putting on, for example, a, uh, a festival programming the the great Russian composers. Um, but I'm not sure that individual targeting individuals is ever a really useful way to enact sanctions. Uh, yeah,
1: Svetlana, what about? What about banning people who are identified with Putin, like Anna Netrebko?
6: Sorry, I could not hear your question. I apologize. I uh, just very quickly wanted to add to what Katya was saying. There's Cannes festivals coming up, and there is a big story because very famous Russian film director Kirill Saberudinkov, who actually not was just speaking against the regime for many years, but also was sent to jail by the truly fabricated, uh, fabricated um, situation and spend time in jail and so on and so forth, and there, is, uh, there are conversations about uh, banning he film out of the Cannes Festival, and this is the, exactly the very typical situation that I'm talking about, which in my opinion is really not fair.
1: Uh, I, I was asking, and we're just very quickly, what about banning people who are identified with Putin, like Anna Notrebko?
6: Hmm. Anna Netrebko completely changed her position recently and spoke against the war. And she was, uh, all of her concerts in Russia were canceled. She's not welcome to Russia anymore. And, uh, and uh, she may be not the perfect example, but uh, sadly, uh, Valery Gergiev, who has yeah, been uh, I, a great loyal supporter him. of Putin for many years and has not spoken against the war, he's definitely, shouldn't be welcome, uh, uh definitely.
1: Oh, interesting. Uh, thanks. I didn't know that Netrebko uh, had changed her position. I want to take a couple of calls, like, really quickly. We're running out of time. It's a fascinating conversation. Eileen, in Newcastle, what is your view? In 20 seconds, please. Okay. Um, I
3: read the Wimbledon. Um, I agree with uh, excluding the players. Unfortunately, it's very unfair for the players, the tennis players. But anything we can do is to stand off against Putin to show uh, disapproval of what he's doing in Ukraine, I think we have to do it. We've got to we've got to keep hitting him with things and you know, we all like to have a famous athlete in our country. We all like to boast having the top athlete. And I think anything we can do Great. stand up against him. We have to do it. Thank unfortunately.
1: you. Thank you very much, Stephen Berry. Twenty seconds to you. What's well, your? View? I think we should ban him because uh, he uses them as propaganda. Secondly, he's going after civilians, which
2: you're not supposed to in a war. So, if a few people lose a million dollars and they go back, and he uses athletes as a uh, as a propaganda thing, then maybe the people will say, "How come these athletes are not being allowed to make money, millions of dollars in the West?"
1: Okay, thank you for that. I'm going to give 20 seconds each to our guests, starting with Katya.
7: I think that there is um, there's better ways to combat propaganda. Definitely, there is there are ways of. Um, there are also ways to combat it here, abroad, um, and I'm not sure that we're not just feeding into Putin's us against them kind of collective evil West narrative, which is in itself a dangerous uh, a dangerous
1: uh, precedent. Said that. Svetlana, last 20 seconds to you.
6: Yeah, I think I cannot put it better than Katya, so I would just agree with everything that she said.
1: Okay. Thank you so much for that. That's a fascinating conversation. People, remember, Free For All Friday is coming up, if you could not get through. Thank you so much, Svetlana Dvoretsky, and I look forward to the concert that you are negotiating right now. <laughs> and Katra uh, Katya Grubicic. Thank you so much, thank Libby. Thank you. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Right. That's all the time we have for today. Now, tomorrow we are unveiling an all-new political panel. I'm not going to give it all away, but stay tuned because it's very exciting. And that's all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.